Welcome to the CSLP Podcast, where we're helping to educate, inform, and assist financial professionals and student loan borrowers to make smarter repayment decisions. Well, first of all, we would just want to thank uh, Brandon DePinto, Certified Public Accountant, for joining us today so that we can uh, discuss some of the tax considerations with student loans. So, Brandon, thanks, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, so, Brandon, your, what's your experience working with student loan borrowers? And uh, when it comes to tax preparation and tax price, how long have you been helping borrowers that have student loans with their tax considerations? Yeah, so uh, I, I've been working with you, Jans, for a few years now. We've got a number of shared clients. Um, and, you know, understanding some of the unique complexities that occur when you have these students, student loans. Um, and especially when they're on income-driven repayment plans, it's kind of been something we've been both focusing on the last few years. Um, I think by now our firm probably has maybe 20 or 30 uh, clients specifically that, that are in this area of student loan repayments. And so it's an area I think that, that we've kind of not specialized in, but we've certainly grown over the years. And I think it's an area that is kind of overlooked and misunderstood by really both the, the debtor and the tax preparers, because I think in a lot of cases, we see preparers from other, um, from when clients may transfer over or, or questions or concerns from other clients, that maybe they just don't kind of understand how these tax filing issues affect their student loan repayment plans. Yeah, and would you say there's a, a difference in the knowledge base uh, for most of these tax preparers if a if a student loan borrower or a financial advisor was making a recommendation to a client to do their taxes, um, you know, using TurboTax or going to just a uh, cheap tax preparer versus an accountant, a CPA, or an enrolled agent. Yeah, uh, we we see clients or you know new clients that have transferred over to us for any number of reasons, but. Um, Either they've tried to do it themselves, or they've gone maybe the the more inexpensive route, um, you know, with the the H and R blocks or whatever it may be. Um, that they they are often doing these returns incorrectly. Uh, they don't understand all the uh, complexities that go into, um, you know, how income is reported, how deductions are reported, how credits are are sometimes cleared out for married filing separate returns. All these little nuances that. Are, are really kind of not done by the tax software always by themselves that need to be physically, you know, uh, done by the preparer and you need to know to do them. Um, so yeah, I think you want to have somebody that understands the complexities if they're preparing something that is involved with either married filing separate returns or just, you know, people that have student loans themselves that, that kind of have different situations sometimes that you don't always see with others. And Brandon, this is Heather. So to follow up on what you're saying, is it your opinion that the tax software that many people use is going to be 
inadequate for some student loan borrowers, particularly when they're using income-driven repayment plans or when they're married and seeking things like forgiveness for their student loans? Yeah, for sure. Now, granted, we, we our tax software is, is really on the high end of things just because, you know, we're a firm that needs to do hundreds of returns every year and we need the complex, complexities um, uh, to be able to be managed more appropriately. So our software is great, but uh, the cheaper software, though, although we don't use it, I do know that people that have used it will come to us after having made mistakes um, and, and just say, well, I don't know how to get my software, to, uh, how to get the software to do this correctly, or they're not, they're not sure how to, to manage the mistakes that are done within the software. So I think if you're trying to go that route, um, you know, and, and figure these things out on your own, uh, you know, it's difficult to do. And, and to be quite honest, I don't think I would, if I didn't do this for a living, I probably wouldn't prepare my own tax return. Um, that doesn't mean people can't do it themselves. But when you've got something that's more than just a standard W-2 and a standard deduction, it, it kind of helps to have these other programs that kind of help you along the way, I think. Makes sense. And to have a qualified, trained person who can interpret what the software is providing Right. The software is only going to do as good of a job as the person that's inputting the information. So if that is either incorrect or misunderstood, then you're probably going to have an end result that's not ideal or correct for that matter. Mm -hmm. How do you start by even finding out whether your clients have student loans? What tips you off to uh, pay attention to that in a given case? Yeah, the, the easiest way uh, is when we have a client um, provide us with a, a 1098E form, which is just the annual form that shows how much student loan interest the, that they paid during the year. Um, anytime we see that, we certainly know that they have uh, student loan considerations to, to take into consideration when preparing the return. And then other things like, you know, 1098Ts for tuition payments um, and just hopefully conversations with the client that is in regards to their overall tax situation. So a lot of these student loan uh, repayment options, especially the income-driven repayment plans, are driven by adjusted gross income. So oftentimes, financial advisors, the, the, the tax accountants, obviously, are usually looking at adjusted gross income to reduce that number of the taxable income. Uh, but what are some ways that student loan borrowers can look to reduce their adjusted gross income, ways that their financial advisors may make recommendations to help them keep that number down to benefit their student loan payments? Yeah, so so that's a good one. So from a just a simply pragmatic standpoint, I think we want to always look to lower AGI by doing, you know, the things that we all know of, you know, 401k contributions, you know, uh, loading deductions uh, into a year that you create greater benefit, for instance, when people are itemizing their deductions, you know, to lump things into one year, um, as opposed to separating them out between two, that's always beneficial. But but in addition to that, the, the option of, of being able to file uh, for a married couple to file separately um, is is maybe the most beneficial of all because um, by doing this, you're able to either split your income or allocate it differently based on the state that you live in. Um, and that directly is going to reduce the total AGI that's shown on your tax return um, and therefore hopefully lower those those income-based repayment plans, uh, their, their monthly payments that they're having to submit over to them. Mm -hmm. And is that the kind of thing people, student loan borrowers need to have advice 
earlier in the tax year though right or is it is it too late by the time they go to you after the conclusion of a taxable year and is it too late then to increase their contributions for example to the 401k yeah so that's a for the most part there's a lot of things that for employees um you know 401k contributions by the time the the year's over we can't go you know, back and, and have additional 401k contributions. Um, you can't have additional dependent care benefit uh, contributions, stuff like that. There are options sometimes to be, still be able to make a, an IRA contribution uh, before the April 15th deadline and some other SEP IRA stuff before the, the extension deadline. But for the most part, I think it's always great to kind of have a little bit of planning, you know, during the year so that we're not worried about having missed things, you know, once January 1st comes around. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned... What about... Sorry, go ahead, Tyler. I'm sorry, Jens, you go. You mentioned the 1098E, um, and we're talking about student loan interest. Can you go into a little bit of detail about that student loan interest deduction? How much is it for single people, for married people, and, and kind of some of the tax considerations with it as well? Yeah, so the the income, uh, or the, excuse me, the deduction for the student loan interest is capped out at 2500 whether that's a single taxpayer or a, a married person filing jointly. Um, and that for a single person, it, it phases out when their income gets to 65,000 and it's completely eliminated at 80,000. So, so at that point they get no benefit for it on the tax return. Um, and for married couples, it's, it's just double that. So it's 130,000 is where that phase out starts and 160,000, uh, is the point in which you lose the entire deduction. Um, but those, for those that are married, fi- uh, filing separately, they just lose that deduction entirely on that, that tax return. Um, just because it's one of those rules that, you know, the IRS implemented and that is kind of to deter people from filing separately, even though it can be a a benefit for other reasons. And Brandon, to make sure that our listeners understand the student loan interest deduction, even if someone is eligible for the full $2,500, that just reduces the amount of their taxable income, right? By that amount, it doesn't actually reduce their tax by that much yes correct that that's just going to be a a a pre-agi deduction on on what was page one of the tax return before the changes this last year to the tax forms um so a twenty five hundred dollar deduction that would then you know reduce their tax by whatever their tax rate essentially is at that point so it's 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 worth something but it's not an extraordinarily valuable uh provision to begin with Correct. We we have a few people that benefit from it. I mean, you you could get you know what would that maybe save you five hundred bucks on a on a twenty percent tax rate. Um, and for a lot of people that have these student loans that are the the high income uh, earners, you know, attorneys, uh, um, doctors, w- whatever it may be, you know, they're they're way above these income levels and they get a, absolutely no benefit from this student loan interest deduction. W- would you say that many tax preparers? Uh, maybe just th- knowing the income levels of those professionals, just ignore the 1090 AD altogether and, and therefore don't even think about the other considerations of tax filing status and student loan repayment that the return could have? Yeah, I, I certainly would hope not, but I, I'm sure that's the case for some. Uh, we, our firm, you know, we want to get all of the tax documents um, in the file and look at them, even if they're of no tax benefit. Um, one, it's just a good habit to get into to make sure you have everything. And two, like you said, Jance, uh, you know, there's other things that go into this tax filing 
other than just, hey, what's my what's the lowest possible taxable income that I can create? Because it does affect your uh, repayments on these student loan plans. Right. So, so since we're talking about a lot about filing separately here, can you kind of go into some detail as to what sort of deductions or credits other than the student loan interest are, are lost or reduced when filing separately and sort of where the value of, of the Moyer joint versus married separate comes from? Yeah, so that's a, that's a real good question. So the benefit of lowering your AGI by filing separate for these income-driven repayment plans is, is the most beneficial thing of the overall um, difference between filing joint versus separate. But the tax code is going to limit certain things when you file separately. Um, like we just spoke about, you're going to lose the student loan interest deduction, which is usually not that beneficial, but it could still be worth a few hundred dollars. Uh, you are going to lose uh, your eligibility to claim education credits. That can be a certainly more substantial tax savings. Um, you you do have some limitations on child care credits um, and other things like that that are not just simply not allowed when filing separately. Um, in addition to that, there is the likelihood that your income when you're when you're doing these married filing separate returns could be taxed at a higher bracket. Um, that we'll probably speak on will depend on um, both the differences in income between the spouses as well as the state in which they file. Um, in our experience, we've had clients whose tax liability when they're filing separate is to the dollar um, identical to what it would be had they filed jointly. But we also have those that when filing separate have a significant tax increase. It could be, you know, thousands of dollars. Um, so explaining to them and reconciling and understanding the difference between having a higher tax liability, how you can fix that at some point while also still keeping these payments um, lower by having a lower AGI is where we come in and kind of have to explain that to our clients so that everybody kind of understands is on, the, is on the same page. And Brandon, what do you do when you're trying to project the the tax consequences of filing married versus married jointly versus separately in future tax years because i know you know when you have all the documentation you can calculate exactly the difference for someone for the previous year but in many cases student loan borrowers would need to file separately year after year after year um, in order to pursue forgiveness right so we do um, we do quite a few sit down meetings, uh, tax projections, where we're really trying to to figure out okay what's what's happening from a tax perspective uh, for the coming year ahead. What's our income projections? What are our expected deductions? Where do we think we're going to be come year end? How do we plan for that? How do we make sure our withholdings are covering these kinds of things? Um, you know, it really is, is about communicating between uh, our clients and ourselves, you know, instead of just getting a, here's all my stuff, can you prepare my return, please? Hopefully that you're having conversations, especially when things are changing. And when I say changing, I mean, incomes are changing, household uh, households are changing with, with whether that's be getting married or getting divorced or having children or what, what have you. You know, if we're having these conversations throughout the year, we can plan for them. And hopefully by doing that, um, you know, there's no surprises come filing season for everybody. So it sounds like your professional experience student loan borrowers as well as other taxpayers 
really can benefit from ongoing advice, counseling, planning, and, and preparation. It really isn't just like a one analysis, here's the answer, and you're good to go forevermore. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we encourage... Um, we encourage communication throughout the year. We, we don't want any surprises. Certainly the, tax, the taxpayer doesn't want any surprises. And a lot of times they may not know how things are going to affect them because it's not, it's not their area of expertise, right? I, I, wouldn't, um, I, wouldn't, I would have to ask questions of somebody that understood something that I did not in order to better understand it and to see how it affected me personally. So by talking with you know, either their tax preparer or their student loan advisor, a professional, they get a better idea of how things are, how their situation changes and how that affects both their tax returns, their filing, their income-based repayment plans, all that stuff, um, it, which is why communication throughout the year is so key for us and for, for you guys, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So Brandon, uh, you, you mentioned that you've seen a wide range of taxes due by, driven by the married separate returns in your practice. Can you give an idea of like sort of who are the individuals that are more likely to, to have the larger implications from the, the tax filing status and those that it may be negligible to? Yeah, so so those, you know, the, the like we spoke about, the limited deductions and credits, uh, a lot of those are geared towards lower tax uh, or lower income individuals. So some of those losses are a little bit uh, ineffective or, or have no bearing on the higher income earners. But for those that are, are above those and still have to worry about um, both the deductions, the credits, and the income side of things, the, those that have large differences between their spouse's income and their own um, can certainly have a, a big difference when they file separate versus joint. Um, now, with that being said, it does depend on, like we mentioned earlier, what state you are technically domiciled in for tax purposes. And it, that is, where am I filing my state tax return if I'm subject to one and what are the rules for that state? So, you know, in community property states, uh, which most of our clients are in, uh, we're, us being in California, you know, they get the benefit of dividing most of their income equally between themselves and their spouse. Um, now, that reduces the tax burden um, that may be associated with filing separately because everything essentially, for the most part, gets split down the middle and you file your separate returns and it usually results in the same tax. Um, borrowers in non-community property states, um, which are the majority of states, by the way, um, they have to deal with reporting their own separate income on their own separate returns. And that's where you can get some differences between the tax brackets, um, which then results in, in different balances due having filed separate versus filing jointly. So if you had a client that you're sitting down doing a tax projection with them and it looks likely that the tax consequence of filing separate may be significant. Um, what recommendations would you make to them to sort of offset that liability or so they don't owe as much come when they file the return? Uh, also, um, you know, for financial advisors out there that are giving advice to people with student loans, what advice would you give to them to be wary about the potential tax consequences when they may be saying it's best for you to file separate? Yeah, so most of the time, whether they're filing joint or filing separately, you know, the, the same inputs are going to go into the tax return. So reducing AGI from the things we spoke about earlier, you know, 
um, retirement contributions, uh, you know, deductions, all that stuff, you still want to maximize those as best as possible. But uh, when you go to file your return, you need to understand that these things are going to weigh in on how you report this income on your respective tax returns. Now, if you go through the calculations and your tax preparer may say, well, it almost never makes sense to, to file separately. There's almost never a benefit for it from a tax perspective. You're going to pay more tax. Um, you're going to have two returns prepared for you. It's going to get more complicated. That is all p probably true, but they're also not considering the fact that, well, by reporting a lower AGI on my individual separate tax return, my income-based repayment plans will drop significantly. It will more than cover the difference in tax, which for some people is, is negligible at best. So when you're talking about the married separate returns and community property, can you sort of break that down uh, in a little greater detail to us so we can get an idea of how that would be beneficial from a tax standpoint? Yeah, so I got an example here that I just kind of put together real quick. So if, if we're looking at a, um, a separate property state, a uh, married couple, You've got one spouse making two hundred fifty thousand. Um, they're a doctor. You've got another one, teacher, making fifty k. Uh, let's assume that, for just simplicity reasons, that they're going to be standard deduction uh, filers. We're not worried about all that stuff. That's going to put their AGI at two hundred seventy six thousand. So, with the new tax rates, their marginal rate's going to be twenty four percent for federal purposes. They're going to pay about fifty five thousand dollars in tax. Um, now, if they decide, okay, it's, it's beneficial for us to file separately for student loan purposes, and like we said, they're in a, a, a state that is separate property, you're going to have one spouse with 250000 of income on, on his or her respective return. Um, their marginal rate's now going to be at 35%, right? So they're going to pay about $59,000 of federal tax just on their own income. Um, the other spouse with their $50,000 of income after taking the standard deduction, they're going to pay about uh, $4,400 of federal tax. Total tax balance is going to be like $63,400. Let's rounding. Um, so their additional tax is about $8,400 by filing separately, um, which is certainly significant. Um, that's not factoring any other credits or anything else they may lose. That's just straight tax bracket um, income difference. Um, and taxes due to being in a higher bracket. Now we assume the same couple is in a community property state like California, which are a lot of clients that we deal with. Um, for the most part, almost all of their income is always going to be split down the middle evenly. So um, that would mean each spouse would have $150,000 of, of income. After you take the standard deduction for them, each on their re returns, they're going to pay about $27,500 in federal tax. And it's going to put their total tax uh, liability of 55000 which is going to be uh, uh, exactly what it was had they filed jointly. So you will see people in these community property states where it really doesn't affect their, their tax liability by filing separately. It's just a, another return. And you just just be done correctly in order to, to um, um, get everything in there and shown how it's supposed to be technically filed on the tax return. Well, and I'll, I'll just piggyback on what you've said to point out to our listeners the additional student loan benefits in such a circumstance. So if you have your doctor and your teacher in a community property state, they file separate tax returns, and you've just explained how that may not have a significant additional tax burden based on their uh, residence in a community property state. 
from uh, the standpoint of calculating the income-driven payments for, let's say, the teacher in this example who may be pursuing public service loan forgiveness, um, he or she would have the option of providing what we refer to as alternative documentation of his or her income rather than supply the separate tax filing that shows them making um, half of their combined income, which is significantly more than the teacher's separate income, the teacher could use a letter from an employer or, if necessary, a pay stub to document their actual separate income and have their student loan payments based on that lower figure. Yeah, I think that's the benefit of having, you know, communicated with both um, who you're working with for your tax filing needs and who you're working with for your student filing needs, because, you know, the tax return is going to be what the tax return is, whether you file separate or joint, you're still gonna have to follow the rules of, of that that return. But you guys would then understand and be able to explain to them the benefits of reporting that income on a different uh, through a different avenue that is not through your tax return. And like we said, or like Heather said, you're still getting the best of kind of both worlds by showing a lower income and still being able to report your tax return the correct way. Yeah. Now, let's say you had a clients or your financial advisor or as a, as a CPA, you have clients and they're not in a community property state. And we're looking at a situation where we're looking at nine, maybe $10,000 of taxes from the separate return. Most people don't like to pay a lot of money come April 15th when they file that return. So what can they do throughout the year to adjust withholdings to account for that added tax? Yeah. So what we would what we like to do with people that um, may have anticipated balances due um, is run those projection numbers, uh, which includes both looking at pay stubs and other sources of income, understanding what their tax is going to look like for the year, and then saying, okay, here's what we're looking like from a tax liability. Here's what we're thinking uh, we're projecting you to withhold through your uh, through payroll. Um, and what's the difference? And then let's adjust that difference to re- reflect and get us to a point where we're comfortable with either, you know, somewhat of a, a no balance due. We're trying to get to zero returns essentially because, you know, um, nobody wants a big balance due, but also we're not trying to just pay in so much that we get a big refund and give the government a free loan for the year, right? So if we understand taxable income, we understand withholding for the year, we can really zone in and say, okay, you need to change your W-4 to adjust for these differences. Let's have them you know, withhold an extra $200 a paycheck or whatever it may be so that it, it kind of gets us to a point where we can true everything up and get get to that that point where everybody's comfortable with what's going to be um, either due or refunded come tax filing time. Can we shift gears here and start talking about loan forgiveness and forgiven debt? Uh, From a tax perspective, what is it that student loan borrowers and the people who are advising student loan borrowers need to know about the tax treatment of forgiven debt? Yeah, so from a tax perspective, in general, all all forgiven debt is going to be considered income. Now, um, it's going to be reported on a 1099-C. 
um, and it's usually going to be shown on the tax return on a certain line item. But there are some exemptions um, for student loans, um, and the tax code specifically points those out. Um, there's the the 108F. I'm sure you guys have talked about or will talk about um, in the tax code. The, you know the death and disability discharge of debt. Um, and in addition to that, there's exemptions for borrowers who are insolvent um, that that essentially will forego having to treat that uh, canceled debt as income if they are considered insolvent at the time that the debt was just discharged. Uh, I'd love to learn more about insolvency. Can you explain to us what that is and how that works? Yeah, so in, insolvency is when a taxpayer's total assets are less than their total liabilities. Um, when determining this, a taxpayer will fill out what's called an insolvency worksheet. Um, you can get them online, but it, it lists all of your assets, you know, cash, retirement accounts, uh, the fair market value of your jewelry, your cars. It, it's a long list. Um, and then on the other side, it'll show all of your liabilities. That's your mortgage balances, your credit card debt, your student loans, um, outstanding property tax payments, whatever it may be. You list all these things. Um, you've, you total them all up. And if it's determined that the taxpayer was insolvent, meaning that their liabilities were greater than their assets at the date that the debt was discharged, then they will not be taxed on that portion of, of debt forgiveness. Um, now, this is important because oftentimes these forgiven debts can be substantial. You know, we've had clients in the past that have had large sums of debt forgiven. They get these huge 1099Cs, um, not knowing what to do with them. And we say, okay, let's let's walk through things. Let's fill out an insolvency worksheet. Let's see if any of this is is exempted from taxable income. We, we in fact, did one last year. And... I want to say the amount of exemption was upwards of 100000 And if we're excluding $100,000 of income from being taxable, you know, we're saving $20,000, $30,000 just by having known that this, is, this insolvency exemption exists and is there for people in these exact situations. And when you say that they measure the assets versus the liability, does the liability include the debt that was forgiven? Yeah, it's it's essentially what did you owe the minute before that debt was canceled? Let's let's add everything up. What were your balances on on both the asset and the liability side? And if that reduction in debt um, still after having reduced your liabilities, if you're still even more insolvent than that, then it's all going to be forgiven, which is which is a beautiful thing because people are getting these debts canceled or forgiven, and you know they obviously are unable to pay them. So having to put a tax burden on them in addition to that is is certainly you know not beneficial for for them. So that's kind of why it was written in the tax code to begin with, um, and it's a great way to to exempt some tax when it's eligible for these taxpayers. And it sounds like with the right kind of advice in the years leading up to this kind of forgiveness, there might be some tax planning strategies that a, a borrower can use so that when they do get the anticipated loan cancellation, they may have been able to structure things in order to reduce the tax implications of that forgiveness. Yeah, there's always... That would take some long-term planning, no doubt. Um, you know, if we're looking at the insolvency worksheet and we are determining what somebody owned at time of insolvent or at, at time of discharge of debt, 
and we go through that listing of assets, um, some of those things, the ownership of which, if significant balances can be shifted um, under certain scenarios so that they no longer have ownership of them and are no longer um, increasing their total assets, which in turn would make their insolvency less um, and or make them not insolvent at all. Um, so those are things to consider if you know that, that this canceled debt is on the forefront um, and is going to be happening. You can look into that. Um, now, granted, you still need to do it the correct ways, but you're, you're essentially trying to get yourself to a point where um, you are insolvent enough to cancel the debt without it having been taxable. Now, I got a quick question here. Uh, I think for many financial advisors, they hear the term insolvency and they immediately think it's uh, a, syn a synonym to, to bankruptcy. Is filing for insolvency the same as filing for bankruptcy? No, good question. Um, like I said, the insolvency is really just a, a total cumulative uh, understanding of what you owe and what you own at time of discharge. And it has nothing to do with bankruptcy, bankruptcy itself. It, it, when we filed the one last year, you know, it's as simple as going through somebody's um, information, sitting down, having conversations with them, uh, listing out all the assets and the liabilities. And then that information will be reported on the tax return. It has nothing to do with, with going to file for bankruptcy. Um, and it's really a, a tax benefit that needs to be taken advantage of when it when somebody's eligible for it because it can be one of the most uh, beneficial tax savings uh, when it's when it's applied correctly and, and done so. Well, what would happen, Brandon? What if someone had not gotten all the best advice or had not been in a position to? Uh, carry out a strategy to be prepared for taxation of canceled debt. What would happen if someone has a bunch of tax due and they don't have the money to pay it? Yeah, so there's if you have a balance due on your tax return and, and the IRS and, and your state obviously always want to collect their money, they're, they're going to start applying you know interest and penalties um, from the date that, that that balance is due and unpaid, which, you know, for the most part is April 15th. Um, now, that being said, you, you can set up and file for payment plans with the IRS. There's a form you can file with the tax return um, that's usually accepted, especially for first-year uh, filers of the, of the form, um, which allows you to set up a payment plan with them so that you can get this, this debt paid off or these balances due paid off um, without having to incur such large penalties and interest as things accrue. And then there's always, you know, IRS settlements that you can look into if your balance due is significant enough that, that it will warrant that. Um, we don't specifically have to deal with those that often, um, but it's something that can be used. You know, when people start getting these large balances due, you know, 50,000 plus, and they start talking about, you know, I think the new rule is they were, will um, take away your passport for traveling, stuff like that. The IRS is really cracking down on these balances due. You really want to speak with somebody that understands how to mitigate um, those costs and fees associated with outstanding balances due, and hopefully get it reduced and to the point that it can be paid off. Just stepping outside of the tax treatment of forgiven debt a little bit. Um, 
some other things that financial advisors who are giving advice to their student loan borrower clients that they may not be aware of. And this is something, Brandon, we actually talked about earlier this week. Um, there are some other components to say tax filing status married separate that affects uh, traditional financial advice like contributions to Roth IRAs or potential passive losses on real estate, maybe even FSA contributions for dependent care credits. Can you touch on those sort of um, not direct tax questions, but uh, sort of extenuating costs or changes in planning that are driven from that tax filing status? Yeah, so uh, that's a good point because there are rules uh, we spoke about earlier of, of things like IRA contributions um, to reduce AGI, which are, are usually very beneficial. But for somebody that's filing separately or at least thinking about filing separately, the rules for having an allowed contribution to a Roth IRA or uh, a, a traditional IRA are quite different than those that are filing joint because they're based on income limits. And these income limits for married filing separate um, are significantly lower. I mean, uh, you know, we're talking about, you know, AGIs from zero to 10,000. As soon as your, your taxable income AGI is over 10,000, you cannot contribute to a Roth or a traditional IRA if you're going to file separately. Um, there's also things like, you know, your dependent care benefits through work um, that are set up through HR usually and, and uh, are understood within the, the, the firm. Oh, okay, I can contribute $5,000 to my dependent care benefit plan. Uh, that all sounds well and good, but when you're filing separate, that maximum is $2,500. Um, then there's the passive losses for things like real estate. A lot of people, um, a lot of high income earners uh, look into having rental activities. They set these things up. Um, perfectly fine, but they don't understand that passive losses, which are losses from these real estate activities, uh, are very much limited uh, or ex essentially zero when you're filing separately. Um, whereas if you're filing jointly, you may be able to get some benefit from these losses. So just things that are need to be considered um, and uh, taken into everybody's understanding before they they file or they before they do any planning or while they're doing planning that if you're going to file separately you you really need to understand these and and make sure that you're set up correctly during the year so that there's not a big surprise um after the year's over and you're filing your tax return yeah i mean it, it seems to me like from a from an advisor standpoint you may start to learn a little bit about student loans but if you don't understand the real details behind it you know you're still making roth ira contributions or recommendations for contributions while you're recommending your client files separate for their student loans you could be creating some real liability for yourself also as a cpa maybe seeing a 1098e and not recognizing the implications that tax filing and tax filing status could have on student loans could create some liability what are your thoughts about the liability that these financial professionals hold when they have clients that have student loans yeah, you certainly need to be, if you're dealing with these things, um, aware of how everything affects everything, essentially, because, uh, you know, a tax preparer who is, uh, or even a CPA, for that matter, they're, they're entrenched in these in situations, but they may not come across um, these student loan uh, issues all that often and so they may not understand the complexities that go into them and then their, their filing returns um, 
married filing jointly because they think that uh, it's the of greatest tax benefit when in fact it would greatly increase their their repayment plan um, amounts right or on the other side of things you know like you said a financial advisor that is recommending Roth and traditional IRA contributions sounds all well and good um, but if they don't understand that some of these things are not allowable for taxpayers that are going to then file separate tax returns um, that they're still gonna have to they have to deal with penalties now or possible interest or or possible higher taxable income that they wouldn't have had to deal with had they not done that um, you're then putting yourself as a professional in a spot where you've recommended something that is of detriment to your client and you really obviously don't want to be doing that but you need to understand why that is and you should be either you know, uh, learning about why that's the case or using other professionals that understand it um, on a more detailed level than you so that you don't put yourself in that situation again because it can be um, very hard on the firm and yourself as the professional having to then explain this to your clients and possibly even having to have, you know, a settlement payout um, if, it, if it gets to the point where you're having to be uh, or you're being sued by your client for, for malpractice. Brandon, I know you. I know you got to run. Um, so thank you so much for uh, talking with us today. Um, this was, I think, a, a, a great conversation that's going to be very valuable to other advisors out there. Um, you know, our big push for all of this is whether you're a CPA, you're an enrolled agent, you're a financial advisor. You need to be able to understand all the intricacies when you have clients that have student loans. And in today's world, you may not even know you have them, but but you have clients with student loans because that's just about everybody out there today. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Brandon, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us and for helping student loan borrowers within your practice and for you know really spreading the word to other professionals so that people can get up to speed and do the best possible job for their clients. Brandon DePinto. And I got to say, I love the extra capital letter in the middle of a last name. I've always wished I was one of those people. <laughs> yeah, my, my wife said the same thing when we got married. She was quite happy to take the name on. But um, I was uh, <laughs> happy to help you guys. Happy to come on anytime you need me. Um, hope I can provide some insight um, on some of the, the stuff we deal with. But uh, happy to do it. Uh, hope everybody has a great day. And uh, maybe we'll catch you guys down the road. Right. Sounds Thanks, good. Thanks, guys. Thanks so Have a good much. one.